1: Hey guys, welcome back for the second part of this two-part episode featuring the longevity expert, Dr. Peter Atiyah. In this segment, Peter weighs in on the calorie debate, breaks down the emotional side of longevity that nobody talks about, and reveals the four horsemen of death and how to figure out which one you need to watch out for. As a side note, we've just launched our exclusive Impact Theory subscription service that takes your podcast listening experience to a whole new level. So if you're tired of ads cutting into your favorite episodes at the best part, we have got you covered. With our extra Impact Theory subscription, you can listen to Impact Theory completely ad-free. We've also curated amazing playlists on topics like health, mindset, business, and relationships, making it easy for you to deep dive with hundreds of experts and relevant topics. Plus, we're offering bonus monthly episodes that you won't find anywhere else. Click through the show notes to subscribe to Apple Podcasts or Supercast. Sign up today. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Uh, Okay, so if we know what we're trying to do is delay the onset of these diseases, you talk about that in the book, that basically the thing that centenarians have in common is that they probably were able to delay the arrival of heart disease Dementia, because uh, you say this, uh, cancer, that these things are building for oftentimes decades, that you can see heart disease in teenagers, yep. uh, which is pretty crazy. So these are people that have probably delayed the onset of the early symptoms of that for decades more than the people that die at, say, 70 or 80. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. So now then I want to get to, and we'll stay on cholesterol here for a second. So Uh, You talk about in the book that dietary cholesterol does not equal cholesterol in your body. So what does? What causes bad cholesterol being the thing that I'm certainly more concerned about? So dietary cholesterol is
0: very difficult for our body to absorb. It has a bulky chemical side chain on it called an ester. And the only way we could absorb it is if we have an enzyme to cut the ester off called the deesterified and bring it in. We don't have much of that enzyme. So... Most of the cholesterol you eat, such as the cholesterol in, you know, shellfish or eggs, you poop out. Mm. Okay, so we should just make sure everybody understands that. Eating cholesterol has almost zero bearing on your cholesterol levels in your blood. That doesn't mean that your diet has no bearing on the cholesterol mm. in your blood, but your genes play a very significant role in the levels of your cholesterol blood lipids. Mm. So we want to always differentiate between cholesterol and lipoproteins. Cholesterol is the cargo. Lipoproteins are the boat. Hmm. So um, the term bad cholesterol doesn't actually mean anything. People say LDL is the bad cholesterol. That's actually very inaccurate, right? LDL, low density lipoprotein is the boat that carries cholesterol, and LDL is bad, but we should really say LDL is the bad lipoprotein. The cholesterol in LDL is the same cholesterol in HDL, which people call good cholesterol. Hmm. So you can see why it doesn't make any sense. Now, every cell in your body makes cholesterol. So 95% of the cholesterol in your body is cholesterol you made. The reason every cell in your body makes cholesterol is because it is one of the most important molecules in the body. If you couldn't make cholesterol, you would have died in utero. Um, And the reason for it is every cell in your body is wrapped in a membrane and that membrane is made of cholesterol. Most of the um, important hormones in your body, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, cortisol are made from cholesterol. So, this hormone is absolutely, this molecule is essential for life. Um, but not every cell can make enough of it. So we have to be able to traffic it between cells. So we have to be able to take it back to the liver. The liver has to be able to package it back out. It has to be able to move around the system. So if your body is like a big city, the superhighway of that body is the blood, the circulatory system and the circulatory system is made of water. So when you cut yourself, you know you see red stuff come out, but don't let the hemoglobin and platelets and things confuse you. It's just water with a bunch of red proteins in it. Um, And fat doesn't mix with water. Cholesterol is a fat, it's a lipid, and it doesn't dissolve in water. So we can't just move cholesterol around in the blood the way we move glucose, Mm. or the way that we move sodium or potassium. Those things are dissolving in water. They're called hydrophilic, and they move around freely. Cholesterol is not, it's hydrophobic, it repels water. So that's why we have lipoproteins. We have to have these lipoproteins to move the cholesterol in and out of the body. Hmm. And that gets to the point of, there are basically these different types of lipoproteins. Some of them are very high density. They have lots of protein and a little bit of fat in them. Some of them are low density, lots of fat, less protein, and some are very low density, virtually no protein, and lots of fat or cholesterol. And they have different properties. And it turns out that the low density and the very low density ones are the ones that are atherogenic. Meaning they're
1: the ones that promote the destruction of your arteries. Okay, so something is starting to slowly come into focus for me. So fat in the blood is bad. Cholesterol or fat, which one do you mean? I mean fat. So when we talk about, if if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, there are two times now that fat getting loose has sounded like a problem. Ah, uh, well, let's not, so, so fat is rarely fo- floating around the bloodstream for the same reason. But if just... a lipoprotein, if the very low density mm-hmm. is, indicated because it has very little protein and a lot of fat well just when i use fat there what i'm really referring
0: to is triglyceride and cholesterol but they're inside mm-hmm. the lipoprotein why the, does it matter
1: that the ratio of protein to fat starts getting low it only matters in that that's how i'm describing why their difference in density got it yeah so it isn't that it is fat that makes
0: them problematic so what do they do what's problematic is that the low density lipoprotein and the very low density lipoprotein are the only ones that seem to make their way into coronary artery walls or mm. artery walls in general and they have the potential to get stuck in there. So the high density it's lipoprotein like a shape thing? No, we don't really have a great sense of it. It's something about apoB. Hmm. So HDL, high density lipoprotein doesn't have apoB on its surface. It has something called apoA on its surface. And when a high density lipoprotein goes into the artery wall, it comes back out. When An ApoB particle goes into the artery wall. Sometimes it comes out, but sometimes it stays in there. Mm. And when it stays in there or gets retained, bad things begin to happen. The first of those things is it undergoes a chemical reaction called oxidation. That chemical reaction called oxidation creates an inflammatory signal. And that tells inflammatory cells called macrophages or monocytes to come, they become macrophages and they eat that oxidized LDL molecule. That's what kicks off a devastating cascade in which the body, ironically and paradoxically, in trying to fix the problem, creates a catastrophic problem Mm -hmm. that ultimately leads to the creation of a plaque that, if it
1: ruptures, will block the blood supply of the artery and cause a heart attack. You've got... The two types that end up, basically, they have the ApoB on them. ApoB can get stuck in my arteries. Once it's stuck in my arteries, my body sends a immune response effectively yep. that then ends up creating a problem. Uh, is that calcification? Calcification
0: is the final stage of the body trying to repair the problem. So think of it as the concrete that gets poured on a melting down nuclear reactor. Mm -hmm. So when you get a CT scan, that's like what's called a coronary CT scan to look for calcification, the presence of that calcification, while by itself not problematic, is predictive of something bad that's happened. Mm -hmm. I describe, I think in the book, calcification is like going through a neighborhood and seeing bars on the windows. The bars on the windows are actually a good thing. They're going to prevent somebody from breaking in. Right. But it tells you what kind of neighborhood you're in.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now that makes a lot of sense. Going on with my diet. One thing that I'm very curious about, and there's a raging debate online. A calorie is just a calorie. Um, where Where do you come down on that in terms of the quality of the calorie? Does it matter? Uh, If I'm eating like if you agree that the quality of the calorie matters, but I'm still under eating, do I have a problem?
0: So the, the, the calorie is a calorie discussion always needs some clarification. Are we talking about with respect to energy balance? Are we talking about with respect to nutrition and health? Are we talking about with respect to satiety? And and so we have to clarify which of those we're talking about. All I'm talking about ever is longevity. So So then a calorie is not a calorie for sure. Right. So in other words, if you took a bunch of people and put, you know, one group of them on 2,500 calories a day of Twix bars Mm -hmm. and another group on 2,500 calories of, you know, one food only lettuce, you know, or whatever. It wouldn't be 2,500 calories of lettuce, but, you know, 2,500 calories of- Venison sticks. Venison sticks. And another group on 2,500 calories of some well-rounded diet that's, mm-hmm. you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. They might all end up with the same weight. They might have a different health quality. And they mm. would, I would expect it. I clearly don't expect the guy on 2,500 calories of Twix bars to live as long as the person on 2,500 calories of good food. Mm. Nor do I expect them to feel the same. So, if you're totally—and by the way, they might end up at slightly different weights because of how they feel—and while you may, in this experiment, control only their intake, you might not be able to control their energy expenditure. Mm. So they might actually expend different amounts of energy because of how they feel. So, um, the the calorie is a calorie debate. I think is kind of a silly one because. A lot of times people are talking past each other when they're yelling at each other and they don't understand what they're talking about. Mm. And so, you you know, we just have to understand, are we talking about pure controlled, you know, calorimetry Mm. or are we talking about, in your case, what you're asking about, which is, I think, more important,
1: which is health? Mm. Okay, so... Uh, Your book goes into something really interesting which is the emotional side of all of this So what role does that play? Why does it matter? Yeah, just in a book about longevity. I was surprised to see that section happy but surprised
0: well, I think um, It's not a section that would have appeared in the first five years of my writing this book right like you know, we talked about this book took six seven years to write And the first and second versions of this book were very different from the third version, which is the version sitting on this table. And um, I think when this book started out, it was a book about how to delay death. That was really what the book was about. Like, what do you need to know about heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's disease and exercise and nutrition and sleep and this drug and that drug to delay death as much as possible? And the book really evolved into what do you need to know to live the best life? And I don't think I could write about that without talking about a very important, albeit difficult to quantify aspect of health span, which is the side of longevity that refers to quality of life, Mm. um, without ignoring, you know, by ignoring emotional health. It's, it's what I consider one of the three pillars of health span. So physical health. Right, all the stuff about your body freedom from pain strength flexibility movement all those things cognitive health the ability of your brain to work uh, and to stay sharp and you know have executive function processing speed memory etc but then there's this piece called emotional health and so the last chapter of the book is really about that and i think that had i not written that the book would be very
1: incomplete so for you, is it about identifying why you do what you do? Is it about the example that you give in the book is you healing your own trauma? Um, what what is the game there?
0: Well, the you know, there, there's 17 chapters in the book and 16 of them are. I, I think I'm, you know, coming across in some way as an authority, right? Like that's it's being written as though at least I know what I'm talking about. And I hopefully I do. Um, but. I'm, I'm writing it as the physician and the last chapter is an area where I write it as the patient. So I talk about my journey over the last five or six years in kind of getting better in this dimension. This was always an area of my life that I think was lacking enormously. And as a result of that, um, I think I, you know, the book has lots of patient examples, right? The, the book is written in a, in a, in a scientific way, but of course, you know, you never tell a story without making a point and you never make a point without telling a story. Well, the last chapter, I just happened to be the patient in it. And that's the the way in which I walk through, hopefully, a conveying of the importance of paying attention to this.
1: What I'm trying to figure out, though, is what what is that a category of? So one thing I talk to people a lot about is meaning and purpose. Talk to people about emotional control. Um, But there's also the angle of there's going to be a cellular result of your thinking and this is where it starts to get cloudy and so i'm there are people i'll let them remain nameless that uh i don't interview this type of person because i think they cross the line between thoughts become physical and uh, getting into now we're just making shit up so that you can think something and manifest it or if you have cancer, you can think it away. Mm, mm, uh, yeah. And so I want to know where where is that line for you? You felt it important enough to bring it up in a book about longevity. Was it just though a quality? Hey, I've told you how to get quantity. Now I want to talk quality or well, is it, there?
0: It, no, no. I mean, I think there's several things, right? So so start with the, the question as posed to me by, Esther Perel, have you had Esther on your podcast? I have, yeah. yeah so, so, ago. so people listening will be familiar with her. So, you know, Esther posed this question to me many years ago, which is effectively, why would you want to live longer if you're unhappy? Mm. And that's such a obvious question, and yet I am amazed, absolutely amazed, at how much I interact with people. Because remember, all I do is interact with people who want to live longer. Mm. That's my job. Everybody I'm talking to everybody who wants to talk to me always wants to talk about how to live longer How to live better in some way and yet very rarely are they paying attention to this aspect of their life? What is their? Relationship like with themselves. How well as you put it do they understand themselves? What are their relationships with other people? How well are they able to regulate their emotions? How present are they? What is their sense of purpose? What is driving them all these things and if that? house is in disarray i would make the argument that living longer is a curse not a blessing it's a bold statement but so pu- push back on it i mean what's the, what's the definition of torture right so, let's, let's let's play a thought experiment if i said to you tom i'm going to grant you immortality in perfect health so it's not going to be like tithonius where i let you live forever but you age forever that mm. would be hell no no, no. i'm going to allow you to stay right like you are now you're not going to get one more wrinkle on your face. You're never going to get a disease. Would you take it? Yes. I'm not going to give it to anybody else in your
1: life. Oh, yeah, I would take that. I'm always shocked that other people, my wife included, wouldn't, but okay. I would.
0: All right, so so let's go one step further. I'm would going to give you? it.
1: No, I wouldn't. That's so interesting. Do you know how many people you're going to watch die? Wait, I'm making the assumption that's what bothers you. Why wouldn't you take that? Um. Well, let's come back to me. I want to keep going with you for a minute. Okay. Okay. So now I'm
0: going to ex- give you a different experiment. We're going to yep. do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to put you on a desert island now. Yep. And I'm going to provide everything for you. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to have to worry about finding food. Um, in fact, forget the desert island. I'm going to p- keep you in this beautiful house. Yep. And I'm going to somehow keep the lights on. And I'm going to somehow keep the food coming in. But there will be no
1: other human on this planet for you to ever interact with, mm-hmm. including your wife. Would you take that? Can I kill myself? No. So I have to live forever like that? Yes. That's the first one where just what I know about the human psyche breaking in isolation. I, I it would be ill-advised though. God, I would want to. If you'd let me kill myself at any point, I would take it. But if I can't, it's too dangerous. No, of course you wouldn't take it, right? I mean, you. How it's not could... in the course for me. That is not self-evident. And if I didn't understand what happens to the human psyche when it's isolated, in in my life where I have been isolated for extended periods of time, I have experienced no suffering whatsoever. Uh, I, I just know I, I don't that disagree with that, but I think extreme. the question
0: is, yeah, what's the longest period of time you've been isolated?
1: Yeah, exactly. And what does is isolated
0: truly week. mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And if I have input, like if you let me keep the lights on and I could have entertainment, I've thought a lot about this. Like <laughs> uh how much would that help? But like let's you saw the movie Castaway? Yeah. Okay. So if I had any glimmer of hope that I could get off that island, I would want to be alive. I would want to try and yes, try. Yes, but that's and try a totally different try. story, right? Yeah. So this is. But this what I'm saying is, even the hope that I could one day reconnect. I'm telling you, there's no hope. I'm yeah. telling you. So then you I would not. That I'm going to let you live
0: indefinitely in this house all by yourself. Yep. Okay. Yep. So that's just an extreme example of one dimension of emotional health, which is mm-hmm. connection to others. And I'm I'm telling you that given everything to excess. Oh, and by the way, I'll even I'll even sweeten the deal, Tom. I'll give you all the money in the world, and you can buy whatever you want well right now
1: buy what oh you can
0: buy yachts art whatever you want we've we're going to have robots that do everything for you that that make everything and you can't interact with these robots I was going to say no, 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 you no. Threw it, you complicated no, 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 no. the the robots are not a, they're it. not okay. going to supplant human so there's
1: there's everything i could ever want except for human you can have all the
0: cars all the yachts yep. all I know the better. whatever yep. you're not going to do it if you really stop to think about it you're not going to do it mm-hmm. because with no connection to another person it's a meaningless life yep So we could do the same sort of exercise going through all of these different elements of emotional health. And I think if people are really being brutally honest with themselves, they'll realize that if you, you know, if your wife hates you, if your kids hate you, if you're, you know, you're if people around you don't feel good about you and you don't feel good about yourself and you're not, you know, you don't have a sense of why you're doing what you're doing, I think I think it's a I think it's a tough I think it's a tough way
1: to live. Mm. So it do you think that people asking that question of how to live longer is in some ways, not the wrong question, but it's just so incomplete that you need to address the emotional side?
0: I think it's a very understandable question. Um, I can't speak to others, but I certainly, through my own experience, can understand why one would ask that question Mm -hmm. and why it's something you would want to grasp onto. I mean, I think that for most of us, the thought of not existing is a little, um, if not frightening, certainly very uncomfortable. Hmm. Non-existence is very difficult.
1: Only on the back side. So we all know what non-existence is like. Try to imagine what you were like before you were born. So I don't, it's possible I'm deluding myself. It's also possible that I really just see this slightly differently. So I have absolutely no fear of not existing. If, yeah, the thought of just not waking up tomorrow only gives me anxiety around, ooh, did I make sure that I sorted things out for my wife? Like, is she going to be okay? Like the thought of something bad happening to her, I don't like that. Um knowing that I'm about to die would change my frame of reference so radically that it would make me immediately behave differently. Mm -hmm. So definitely a huge part of the way that I behave is predicated on that I have more time. I try to operate knowing that it's certainly not guaranteed. I could have an aneurysm and keel over and die before the end of this podcast. Uh, I'm very aware of that. Um, The reason that this Feels so important to me, and the reason that I was so glad you included it in the book, is that I think the only thing ultimately that matters is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. And if you have earned your own respect, I think that's hugely important. I just found it very intriguing that not a lot of people are going to cover that topic in your book. And I was wondering if there is, if it's just that, like, Hey, make sure that, that it's worth fighting this hard to stay alive and make sure that you're not just driven by the animal instinct to fight or flight. And basically you have a vision of your mortality that you're running away from, but you're never like figuring out why you live. Or is there also a sense of if you're in that state where you're very stressed out, you're prone to anger whatever the case may be, you're Also shortening your life.
0: Yeah, I think it's both Tom, and I think that a lot of people are self-sabotaging without understanding why so We have a lot of agency over living longer I mean if there's one thing I hope someone takes away from this book It's how malleable their lifespan is Mm. and how malleable their health span is But you have to do things to get that as you Pointed out at the beginning of the discussion, there is no easy way to do this. Um, There's not a pill or a specific workout or a superfood or a supplement or whatever that's going to make all of this easy. It's a lot of stuff that has to be done over a relatively long period of time. And your ability to do that is highly predicated on your relationship with yourself. And so, you know, having sort of poor sleep habits, poor nutrition habits, poor exercise habits on some level has a component or a root in your emotional health. And that's not true for everybody, but it is true for a lot of people. Uh, And I see this constantly in my patients, right? I see patients whose own story, whose own narrative is partly an impediment to their actions. And so, They're suffering twice. They're suffering in that their failure to take actions or their actions that they're taking, for example, drinking too much, are going to actually shorten their life. But they're also going to um, decrease the joy of their life and the harmony of their life for whatever period they have.
1: Mm. So let's say that we do everything right. Let's say we've got meaning and purpose. We have dealt with our emotional difficulties. We have identified, and this is actually something that's really important that I took away from the book. You really have to figure out what of the horsemen is coming for you, what agent of death from a family history genetic makeup lifestyle all of that which one is most likely to come and get you I think that's very important it might be worth actually recapping who the horsemen are we've touched on them I think all of them but we didn't name them as like these are the horsemen might be worth doing that um but so you've you're doing all this how long can we live like is it really like we're already there it's like 122 and and I hope you get there my friend and follow the book and you'll get to 122 or can we actually push this farther? Based on what we have
0: today, I don't see us exceeding the human record for longevity. Mm-hmm. I think to go beyond that would require a technological breakthrough. So I would never represent that you know doing everything to the max with respect to perfect nutrition, perfect exercise, perfect management of the horseman through all means necessary, that that's going to get someone to exceed that level. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my thinking of this is that, you know, we might have 10 years of stretch um, which is a huge amount if you really stop to think about it, right? If your, you know, life expectancy is eighty-two and you make it to ninety-two instead, and their quality exactly, and that's the point, right? Where I'm really confident we have the capacity to change it is on quality. Hmm. And, I, you know, I said to you, everybody comes to me on some level and they want to talk about longevity, but when I really probe them what they really mean is health span. Mm -hmm. They don't care as much about how long they live. They really care about the
1: quality at the end of their life. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world Get things off your chest, process through things with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p dot com slash impact theory. I care about both, to be really honest. Uh, that, as do I. Healthspan would be if I don't have that, it's all meaningless. I totally agree with you. Um I would pay almost any price to live longer. And so the, for instance, um, the question that, that uh, you asked, like I would, even if there was an apocalypse, as long as there were some other people, even if it killed everyone I knew and loved, which would be brutal, man. Like I'm, I am into my wife in a way most people just are not into their significant other, so I can tell by talking to them. And even that I would, if a meteorite hit and it was like, your, your wife is going to die, but you can live. I'd be like, yeah, I want to live. So my wife wouldn't though. She's nor, like, if you die, I. I'm going. That's so interesting. I can't wrap my head around I mean, around it,
0: it depends on my kids, but, but yes, if my wife and kids were not on this earth, I wouldn't want
1: to be on this but earth. But what would happen if, God forbid, Peter, God forbid, I don't have kids because, partly because I am so afraid of how devastating it would be if they died. But if they died, would you want to die?
0: Um, I mean, again, I, I hope I never have to contemplate that. But if God, I lost really. all of my kids, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have a hard time probably
1: wanting to go on. Wow. Wow. I get it, man. Look, it is, it is. I I have seen people go through it. It is an unbearable thing that I can't believe life asks of anybody. But despite knowing how bad that hurts, and I would not want to go through it, I don't know, man. And and look, of course, I might get so rocked. I'm just saying here from an emotional sobriety standpoint where it is just a thought exercise, um, I don't understand people's response to be like, yeah, just take me out. But let's go back to, I think, what's the more germane
0: point, which is um, you want quality of life and length of life. I hope what comes across really clearly in the book is those are not mutually exclusive. Mm. And what I really would like people to understand is If you pursue them both, you get them both. In fact, if you just focus on health span, if you just focus on preserving cognition, having the most physically robust body possible as you age, and pursuing emotional health, you are
1: guaranteed to get
0: lifespan benefits as well.
1: Mm. Okay, so talk to me about the horsemen. Let's name them.
0: So there's four. Three of them basically account for the majority of death in the uh, first world. One of them directly doesn't account for that much of the death, but indirectly probably accounts for the most of it. In other words, it's the amplifier of the other three. So the big three are the diseases of atherosclerosis, so heart disease and stroke. Second one is cancer. Third one is neurodegenerative diseases inclusive of all dementias. So that includes Alzheimer's disease, uh, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body, dementia, vascular dementia, et cetera. So those, those three really, they, they show up a lot on death certificates. They kill a lot of people. The fourth one is more of a spectrum. It's not a single disease, but it's the spectrum that goes from hyperinsulinemia to insulin resistance, fatty liver disease, all that metabolic stuff we talked about all the way out to type two diabetes. Mm. And again, not a huge number of people's death certificate says NAFLD, NAFLD. Type two diabetes, a little bit, but not not staggering. But when you're on that spectrum, the further you get towards the type two diabetes side of that spectrum,
1: you're just doubling your risk, essentially, of all the other three horsemen. Do you think that metabolic disease is causative? Like, is basically every non-traumatic um, death? Is it downstream? No,
0: it's 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 uh, it's neither necessary nor sufficient, but it is causative Hmm. So so you can have causality without necessity and sufficiency. So let's take an obvious example smoking is smoking causatively related to lung cancer 100% like meaning there is a causal relationship between smoking and lung cancer, but 15% of people who get lung cancer never smoked I don't know the number but many people who smoke don't get lung cancer so similarly, metabolic disease is a hundred percent causally related to the other diseases, but not everybody who gets meta not everybody who's metabolically ill is going to necessarily mm-hmm. succumb to those diseases. You could die of something else. Um, and not everybody who succumbs to those diseases had
1: metabolic disease. Okay, that's really interesting. There's at least one example you give in the book. I'm not sure where you put your own story, but you scored a six on the calcification uh scale, very young, 30 35. And then Anahad O'Connor, who we bizarrely both know, you know him way, 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 way better than I do, but I had the good fortune of meeting him. Um, he scored like 126 or some ridiculous yeah. thing. So is that the kind of example where you guys were both relatively healthy, but have this, what, genetic predisposition? Well, totally different issues. I mean,
0: Anahad, as I write about in the book, had, uh, unbeknownst to him, a very elevated LP little a. Um, which is genetic, and he was otherwise exceptionally healthy Um, and is to this day exceptionally healthy, but had this genetic issue that was driving, you know, rapidly advancing heart disease and luckily, Mm. um, you know, was caught really early. I mean, 125 or whatever his calcium score was pretty darn advanced, but to be able to catch that at such a young age uh, is is gonna make an enormous difference in course correction. So had he not had that calcium scan done and acted on it, uh, there's virtually no question in my mind he would have died prematurely.
1: Yeah, so I was gonna ask, so if that isn't a driver or isn't being driven by his diet, is it purely just genetic luck of the draw? Yes. Okay, so in the book, you tell a story of somebody that came to you, they had just the worst deck of cards or hand of cards that you could be dealt Around uh, cognitive decline, well, as in the, they had the
0: worst. I mean, they didn't have the worst. Fortunately, they had, you know, a
1: very bad hand dealt to them vis-a-vis the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So, how do you, if you get a rough deck hand, why keep calling deck? You get a rough hand like that. Uh, what do you do? Um, you start acting as
0: early as possible to mitigate the risks. So we know what one, we we have a really good sense of things that people can do to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And in this particular woman's case, I call her Stephanie, that's not her real name. um, We we undertake a number of things uh, with respect to sleep, stress, uh, nutrition, exercise, supplements that we know are correcting certain deficiencies such as elevated homocysteine levels. Um, And unfortunately, In her case, fortunately, because she's so young. But unfortunately for many people, we don't have pharmacologic strategies yet. Mm. So we're just, I think, on the precipice of sort of some precision medicine ideas. So for example, in our high-risk patients who have this gene, the APOE4 gene, we are using a new test called the C2N test that measures plasma amyloid. And we're using plasma amyloid as a biomarker for the first time now to track interventions. So in other words, we're using drugs, exercise, nutrition, et cetera, to try to lower plasma
1: amyloid in high-risk people. Mm. Talk to me about drugs. Like this is one thing, statins comes up a couple times in the book. I, I The only drug I take is an antihistamine and I would stop doing that if I could figure out what it is either in my diet or my environment that's giving me the allergies. Uh, but I've had it across like seven different places that I've lived, different states. I mean, it just doesn't seem to matter. Um, I've had wildly varying diets, doesn't seem to impact it. Anyway, so I take an allergy medication um, and then I'll sometimes supplement vitamin D. But other than that, I I just have a real hesitation to take any supplementation whatsoever um, but you don't seem to have the same fear I have of an isolated compound. So you get people on statins if they have early signs of heart disease?
0: Not necessarily. I mean, when it comes to managing ApoB, which is the thing we're trying to manage on the lipid side, Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of classes of drugs. Statins are one class of drug. That's Mm -hmm. one way to lower ApoB is to use a statin. Statins also happen to have the most side effects of any class of drug that lower lipids. In fact, all the other classes of drugs that lower lipids have no side effects. Statins really have the worst side effects by far. So you might say, well, why do we even tolerate statins? Like, why would we even use them? We use them because we have the most data for them. They are very efficacious, though not the most efficacious. Um, And they may have some other benefits that go beyond their ApoB lowering benefits. So all of that has to kind of be weighed. And you have to weigh that against the downside of statins, which are that a non-trivial subset of people um, have at least one of two problems in the presence of a statin. One, they get muscle soreness. The other problem is, paradoxically, their glucose metabolism goes to hell. Hmm. Uh, Not entirely clear why, by the way, but we see dysregulated glucose metabolism in a small subset of patients on statins. And again, we see in a small subset of those patients about 5% muscle soreness. So if we have those symptoms or signs in a person on a statin, and we've chosen a statin as part of the solution in this lipid-lowering campaign, we just discontinue it. And Um, can... it, It reverses like that.
1: But when you prescribe somebody a drug, do you do that only when it's like they cannot... Uh, Address this via diet and exercise. Yeah, it
0: depends. So um, it depends on several things. So certain So exercise has very little bearing on lipids It has no clinically meaningful benefit on lipids Mm. has a much better Clinical benefit on metabolic health and blood pressure, which are also very important in controlling heart disease So we care a lot about exercise because we want to control those other things that drive heart disease the big three by the way are smoking high blood pressure and high ApoB so um, we again, we're trying to do all of this in concurrent fashion, as opposed to just you know playing whack-a-mole on one thing. Mm. Um, but nutrition has a relatively um, minor role outside of extremes at controlling apoB. Um, once a person, once you get a person sort of insulin sensitive, uh, and once you've normalized their triglycerides. Unless you're willing to go on profound fat restriction, it's very difficult to get ApoB in the levels that we deem appropriate for um, true prevention.
1: Would you rather put them on profound
0: fat reduction or- Generally not, because it usually comes at such a high cost. What's that cost? uh, Usually they end up getting insulin resistant because you're now putting them on a very high carbohydrate diet and they're usually protein malnourished.
1: Why would that be true? So it with, just
0: is a function of what they're eating.
1: So for two years, so I used to be sixty pounds heavier. To lose the sixty pounds, I basically just ate chicken breast and broccoli. And while not fun because I was also calorically calorically restricting so hard, uh, it was fine. Yeah,
0: and if that works, that's that's would that be
1: preference though over a drug?
0: Here's what I say: No, the answer is no. Hmm. What I say is. Diet is a way harder problem to get right than drug. So let's get the diet right first. Let's come up with the diet that works best for your metabolic health, mm-hmm. your muscle mass, your um, your sort of fat distribution, and your sanity. Diet is really hard to get right. Mm. Maybe not for you. You're kind of a, you know, a highly disciplined person, but for most of us, we want to make sure that we can put you on a diet that you're, you're able to stay with for the long haul. We're not compromising muscle mass. We're not compromising metabolic health. So if that diet also happens to produce very low ApoB because it's highly restrictive in fat, fantastic. Mm. Stay the course. In my clinical experience, taking care of lots of patients, that's not the case for most people. For most people, the diet that produces optimal muscle mass, really good metabolic health, and is something that they can tolerate for a long period of time, it's not sufficiently reduced in fat enough to have a meaningful impact on their lipids. And therefore, if we want to get ApoB low enough to really get into major prevention territory, we're going to need a drug.
1: Mm. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if it's more enlightening to find out what stack of drugs supplements you take or if based on horsemen that is likely to kill you i have people on these but i am curious what what do you take are you on rapamycin metformin anything like that
0: um i do take rapamycin i do not take metformin um i do take a a lipid lowering drug i take two lipid lowering drugs so one of them is called rapatha it's a pcsk9 inhibitor so it's an injectable drug that um, prevents the degradation of LDL receptors on the liver. So that's by, specific. Very specific. So it's a very clean drug. Has no side effects. Uh, works incredibly well. It's the most potent lipid-lowering drug we have.
1: Did you have a genetic predilection to something that made this necessary?
0: I mean, I, I just only in that I have a genetic predilection to heart disease. My mm. family history is abysmal for heart disease. So, um, you know, once that came into focus for me, I was very clear that I was going to do anything and everything to at least take that off the table. Right. Um, and that basically means not smoking, not an issue, having low to normal blood pressure, fortunately not an issue and having physiologic concentrations of ApoB, meaning lowering my ApoB to the level of a child.
1: Okay. And you, are you able to get to that? Or is that what this injectables for? I use these drugs to do that. Got it. Does rapamycin help with that? No. So what's rapamycin about? Explain what it does to people.
0: Um, well, I, I think that's, that's a bit of a TBD right now. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we know what it does in the on-label use. So on-label use of rapamycin, which is, you know, taking kind of a medium dose every single day is an immuno, is an immunosuppressive dose. And that's, how rapamycin was approved in 1999 by the FDA for use in, uh, patients with solid organ transplants. So when you have an organ of somebody else put into you, your immune system naturally wants to destroy that organ. Mm -hmm. So patients who get, uh, organ transplants, kidneys or livers or hearts or things like that, they have to be on a cocktail of drugs to suppress their immune system, specifically their T cells, which are the, um, uh, cells that would normally be going after viruses, but now they're going after the organ. So, um, that's nothing to really do with how we're thinking about rapamycin as we're thinking about rapamycin through the lens of what's called Giro protection, which means you don't really have a very specific disease you're treating. You're more broadly targeting the process of aging at the cellular level. And there, um, based on a lot of animal data, that's very compelling. It appears that rapamycin does indeed provide Giro protection, um, but it's very unclear as to how to dose it to get that. Um, and how you dose it in a mouse probably isn't how you should dose it in a human. Hmm. But we don't really know. Um, so if we don't know, why? why? am I doing it? Yes. Yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm, I'm steeped reasonably well in the literature, and I have a strong enough conviction that the way we're dosing it for this purpose has a much higher probability of being valuable than not. But I'm going to be very quick to abort in the presence of new information. Mm. Just as new I...
1: information that you see in the literature, in your blood, both. All of the above.
0: New studies coming out. You know, there's a very important study coming out in three years um,
1: called the aging, uh, the dog aging project, I believe mm. it's called. Yeah, yeah, Matt Caberlin. Matt Caberlin. yep. I had him on the show. Yeah, so... Um. So very interesting. So if I remember right from... Uh, talking to him, basically were trying to get out of mTOR, more or less, which is my big fear with my diet, because I am I eat so much. I mean, so much has changed my mind since reading your book, but I eat so much protein, animal protein specifically. I imagine I'm in mTOR all the time. And so it was, is tempting to try rapamycin, but is that what's really going on? Uh, not really. I mean...
0: Well, yes, rapamycin is is an inhibitor of mTOR. That's that's how the drug works. Um, But it's not, when you eat protein, the activation
1: of mTOR is relatively short. So but if you're eating it all the time, wouldn't you then presumably just constantly be stoking that fire? Not necessarily. I mean, even if you eat like
0: I do, which is no intermittent fasting, there's still 14 hours a day. I'm eating nothing. Mm. Right. So um, and again, amino acids do not stick around very long in circulation. So, mm. you know, you're, you're they're coming on. They're stimulating mTOR and then they're gone. Um, if 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 mTOR, if if um, rapamycin's benefit is through mTOR inhibition specifically. um it's probably more through the inhibition of chronic elevation. Okay. And who knows, there may be tissue specificity, it may be more about what it's doing in one part of, you know, in one tissue versus another. Mm-hmm. It might not be in the muscle, it might be in the liver. Um, there, there are a lot of unanswered questions here, which is why I think the work Matt is doing is really important.
1: If you, I'm guessing you have a, a hypothesis at a minimum of what the mechanism of action is there that is prolonging life. Like if we think about your whole hypothesis on a centenarian, is that the four horsemen, they're just delaying longer than anybody else. So what is, do you guess, rapamycin is doing that causes the delay of one or all of those?
0: Probably some enhancement of autophagy, uh, probably some inhibition of senescent cells
1: Mm.
0: possibly some reduction of inflammation
1: is it reducing the creation of senescent cells or just the rapidity with which they're cleaned
0: no it might be uh inhibiting the secretory factors that they secrete so senescent cells release these factors that effectively are their agents that poison other cells and it might be the case that rapamycin is impairing that process Mm.
1: Very interesting. So that makes me think about cancer. So we talked a little bit about that before. We didn't go into a lot of detail. So cancer, I don't know if people are more afraid of dementia or cancer, but both of those are pretty terrifying From in terms of ways to go out. Uh, with cancer, we've, I forget how long we've been the war on cancer. We've made precious little progress. Are we barking up the wrong tree? Like what, what is it that either makes that so hard? Like if we know what it is, why is it so hard to deal with? And if we don't know what it is, why do you think that's evaded our eye for so long?
0: Well, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, you're right that we have made scant process in the most important metric of cancer, which is overall survival. So, if you think about it, for everybody who gets cancer, we should be asking the question, how likely is it that they will not die of the cancer that they just got? Mm. Um, Another way to think about that is how likely are they to be alive in 10 years? If you're alive in 10 years after getting cancer, that cancer is unlikely to be the thing that kills you. Um, And by that metric, we've only made about a five to 8% improvement in 50 plus years. Whoa. And that improvement has been largely in some very specific cancers. So that's not like across the board, we've gotten a bit better. It's like, no, we got a lot better in a couple of cancers, namely leukemias and certain lymphomas, a couple of other esoteric cancers like testicular cancer, And aside from that, we haven't really gotten better. Hmm. Uh, Now, very recently, there's some exciting news that does seem more applicable to a slightly broader array of cancers, which is the form of therapy called immunotherapy. So unleashing the immune system to fight some solid organ tumors has also proved to be, uh, and and some leukemias and lymphomas, has proved to be quite promising, but we still haven't figured out a way to unleash that against every cancer. even though in theory it should work, right? Every cancer should have at least some mutations on it that the immune system could recognize as non-self. And we know for certain that 80% of them do. In fact, 80% of cancers, solid organ cancers, so these are the ones that are killing the majority of people, right? So breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, etc. Um, 80% of those cancers have what are called novel neoantigens on them, meaning they have antigens on them that are novel to the cancer and recognizable by the host's own immune system. Mm -hmm. The problem is there aren't enough T cells to recognize it to mount a sufficient immune response. So the real challenge of cancer therapy today, in my view, is going to be enhancing that problem, that process rather. In other words... I think most of the attention on cancer should be on how do we create more reactive antigens in cancer and how do we enhance and extend the longevity of T-cells to attract that. Um, so I'm, I'm actually surprisingly more optimistic now about this than I was even when I started writing the book uh, because of what I'm seeing with a class of drugs called checkpoint inhibitors and also for um, what I'm seeing with interesting clinical trials where we're seeing the pairing of checkpoint inhibitors, which are immune modulators and conventional chemotherapy drugs, which take tumors that are not previously susceptible to this immune modulation, but then create mutations that then make them susceptible. Hmm. Really clever and cool stuff. I I think I write about a couple of examples of that in the um, cancer chapter. Hmm. So, um, it's it's easy to be sort of pessimistic about cancer because of how poorly it has gone for the past 50 years, but I think the next 10 years look a lot
1: better than the last 50. Hmm. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Because of things that are already in motion? Yeah, because of these processes that are in motion. So- if you got diagnosed with cancer, what would be like step number one? You, what kind of cancer is it? Uh, is it one that responds to immunotherapy? Is there like a protocol that you would walk down? No, it would be entirely dependent on what the cancer was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so that gets to kind of step two
0: of my thinking on cancer, which is, uh, is the, the unequivocal, unambiguous understanding that your odds for treating
1: cancer go down the more cancer cells you have in your body. So detecting it sooner. In the book, you talk about you for your patients, you lower the age of colonoscopy. We do
0: everything much more aggressively. Mm. So we, you know, we're we're doing we're doing colonoscopy much earlier, much more frequently. We're how doing, often
1: would you do a colonoscopy?
0: Oh, it depends on the individual. I mean, in me, I do it every three years. Really? Yeah. And then I do stool-based testing in between. What do you check for in the stool? You're looking for fecal DNA. So you're looking for DNA of, of the colon c- cancer. Yeah. Interesting.
1: It has its own DNA? What are we looking for?
0: Yeah, you're looking for the DNA that's shedding from a tumor.
1: Tumors have DNA other than it's not my
0: own DNA? It is your own, but it's mutated. I mean, by definition, every... I mean, cancer is a genetic disease, right? So cancer, by definition, has mutations that render it different from the host cell.
1: In a way that's predictable?
0: uh yeah that's like we and, and know they, what breaks in dna well we mutations know yeah into. we know what's we we're sampling what's normal because uh-huh. we see the abundance of that and then we're looking at what's different is from there that.
1: anything abnormal yeah
0: very and that's what Jesus, a liquid biopsy so you see, is doing
1: how would you do that like the sequencing of that sounds like a nightmare not anymore i mean you ne- can sift through that many samples oh my god
0: next generation sequencing can do this stuff like it's it's
1: simple how many sequences would you have to do in a single fecal sample to figure out if there's one like is it a thousand a hundred ten
0: um i think which maybe a better question is what's the frequency with of abnormal cells that can be detected in the presence of normal and 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 that's a good question i don't know in fecal uh i don't know in the fecal
1: test i know in the blood test it could be one in a million Mm. do you guys speaking of feces uh, do you guys look at the microbiome at all? No. Really? What? Don't know what to do with it yet. Nobody knows what
0: to do with it. Anybody who says they know what to do with it is probably trying to sell you a supplement.
1: That is probably true. Uh, okay, so I'm startled. Me-
0: meaning, look, there is no doubt that the microbiome is an is an important part of human health. Like mm-hmm. we're not I'm not sitting here denying that or saying the Earth is flat. There's no doubt that your diet plays an enormous impact on the microbiome. There's no doubt that, you know, a course of antibiotics will alter it. Like all of these things are true, Mm -hmm. but we're still left with the so what question. I've yet to see an example of where someone can show me that I have a person in whom I detect a problem. I check their microbiome. I make an intervention in response to it that I wouldn't have otherwise made that fixes the problem. Wow.
1: I just don't see those examples. Okay, so man, this is very interesting and important to my life. So, I think we talked about this before. My wife, seven years ago now, I think, had a threshold event where she went from having a manageable gut issue to, I was legitimately afraid she was gonna die. Her hair was falling out, her nails were breaking. She couldn't keep anything down. She was in agony at times on the floor, couldn't be picked up. I mean, it was just really, really brutal. She had to do things like swallow cameras, colonoscopy, endoscopy, like, I mean, she did fucking everything. And this was long enough ago, seven years, that uh, a lot of doctors only sort of knew what a microbiome was. Like, they didn't know anything about it. They only sort of knew that it existed. And so they couldn't come up with any answers. And it was only through finally getting her tested, realizing she didn't have enough diversity, realizing what we're going to have to do to start building that diversity back. It was a very long journey of figuring out what the things were that she was responding to, Um, dietary enzymes, probiotics, prebiotics. I mean, just like this whole arsenal. Now, it may just be oh, we didn't actually, we, and and to be honest, we don't know which of those things worked. And she's said many, because she takes like 26 supplements a day or something. She's like, uh, I don't know, do I still need to take them all? She's like, I have no idea. So she just keeps doing what she's doing. And we don't know the counterfactual in these situations. And and I guess
0: what I'm- What do you mean by that? We don't know what would have happened if you did something different.
1: Yes, very true. So
0: the, this is the problem with this space is we don't have clinical trials upon which to extract knowledgeable or reliable information. Why? I don't know, probably because there isn't enough financial incentive for the industries that typically want to do this, right? Like if you're an unregulated industry, Mm. which is the supplement industry, what incentive do you have to do a clinical trial? You don't require it to sell your product. Mm. All you need is marketing. So that's why no supplement company is out there trying to run a clinical trial. Clinical trials are only run by drug companies because they can't sell their product without a gold standard of a clinical trial. So for as much as people want to kind of poo-poo drugs and rah-rah-rah, yay 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 supplements, they should really be thinking about this in the other way. The burden of proof is much higher on a supplement Mm. in the sense that we have no clue if it works, let alone if it's not harmful. At least the FDA, for all of its faults, and you won't find many people that are more critical of the FDA than I am, I think it's on the verge of being a corrupt organization, at least it tries to hold drug companies to some level of efficacy and safety. It doesn't always do it, Mm. But at least it's trying. At least they're going through those motions. No one's even trying to do that with supplements. I mean, the, the supplement industry is such a filthy, disgusting industry that even though I take supplements, I stress more about sourcing those than I would ever stress about sourcing pharma.
1: Hmm. Okay, so... In other words, you've got to be really
0: careful where you're getting your supplements. So if I'm using a probiotic, which I do during allergy season...
1: Mm. Interesting, again, a probiotic? Why?
0: You know, I I live in a part of the world where there are really wicked allergies and I don't want to get them. Mm. So I've talked to a few allergists and I've said, look, what can I do prophylactically during this season in Austin where cedar fever is out of control? And they say, well, we don't recommend doing immunotherapy until you actually develop the allergy, blah, 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 blah. But a couple of them have said, look, we recommend this probiotic we think it might slightly enhance, you know, this element of your immune response. And I'm kind of like, okay, I, if there's a 5% chance it works and it's not gonna hurt me, I'll take the chance because the only thing I'm doing is wasting money.
1: Mm. But like, I don't find that to be a fair, I mean, I do it somewhat reluctantly, right? It's so interesting to me that the microbiome would play a role in allergies. I mean, I get it because so much of the immune system's there, but it's just, it's such a unexpected twist, turn of events for me. Um, even just the discovery that so much of my immune system resides in my gut was already startling.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's it's it I mean, again, I think the microbiome is interesting and I really hope we get to the point where we know how to manipulate it. Mm um are but, you
1: do you look at the research on that or are you waiting for something more stable to come oh
0: out? i intermittently do but but i don't follow that research nearly as closely as what i'm following other things so, so it's, it's sort of like like every year i'll go back and do a little dive into it with the team and say okay what is there anything we know today and you know year upon year after upon year we kind of come back to the same conclusion mm. which is nothing to nothing exciting to report yet i mean there are edge cases right so fecal transplantation obviously very efficacious in some people um
1: do you worry about fmt
0: Um, I mean, there are huge risks associated with it, Mm. as you know, so it's it's something that should only be done when the risks are justified by the alternative of not doing it.
1: Yeah, we were maybe a month away from me doing fecal microbial transplant with Lisa because I was just like, this is scary. Yeah, understandable. But for reasons of... It just felt like blood transfusions from, like, the 70s or something, where it's like, are they scanning for the right things? Like, very terrifying. So what would you have done if I had come to you with Lisa and said, hey, uh, she's always had gut problems? I would have sent you to someone who who does that. Like, again, I'm not saying that... Who, though? Like, nobody seems to know. Like, when I say we finally even I couldn't resolve it for her as much as I was learning and meeting with experts. Like she finally just had to be like, when I eat this, what do I feel? When I eat this, what do I feel? Yeah.
0: I mean, I, again, it, this is not my area of expertise, so I wouldn't act like it was, um, uh, you know, I, you'd be like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm I'm, I'm, sending I'm, you somewhere I'm, I'm really happy telling people I don't know. There's a yeah. there's, there, there's more things I don't know than I do know.
1: Yeah. That is, uh, that's something that a lot of people struggle with i definitely fall into the other camp where i feel like i know just enough to be like do this come back report so it was really interesting reading your book seeing how much of the things that i felt like uh in fact i'll say this another way i am i'm i'm i have a weird emotional hang-up like i really want to i wanted to say the sentence that i'm gonna stop doing intermittent fasting and and start doing what you're talking about and i probably should uh, do I have orthorexia? This is a very interesting question. I feel it's so easy for me to maintain my body composition through intermittent fasting. It's very easy for me to maintain my uh, my satiety through intermittent fasting. It's when I click over into ketosis, I find that my relationship to hunger is different. But you did say that. hmm that if I'm doing it for body composition reasons, fair enough. That's very interesting. So one thing that, I know I'm just thinking out loud here. One thing that I, um, I do often wonder about with my own physique is protein intake and muscle hardness. When you, like when I'm being really consistent with working out and I take my carbs up, my muscles get really hard. Will I have a similar effect by- And you know why that is, right? Uh, the glycogen is being right. pushed you're, into the muscles it's
0: more water right so more carbs means more glycogen every molecule of glycogen is bringing three molecules of water so you're
1: you're filling up the muscle mm. okay so then is there none of that relevance with protein cuz i was going to say like it's different right so
0: so protein is contributing to the sarcomere the functional unit of the muscle the the that's 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 the part that's contracting right Mm -hmm. that's the functional piece of the muscle so that's what's increasing the synthesis of the muscle and that obviously contributes to size uh but it contributes just as much to function um but creatine You know will add size to muscle through water retention carbohydrates will add glycogen and water to muscle These things are important for performance also by the way, so they're not just an aesthetic thing. Mm. So carbohydrates uh, creatine water protein synthesis all of this matters to muscle
1: If I were eating more protein would you expect uh, my muscles to feel more firm what uh, am I gonna be able to increase my strength more? Like, it, assuming that I hold my workouts the same, because I'm trying. I'm trying to think through: Do I change my diet, or do I just keep doing what I'm doing now? What I'm doing now is easy, but I always thought I was doing. So getting it depends. I don't know and, how
0: you're working out, so I don't know right now what you're limited by. Are you limited by amino acids, or are you limited by progressive overload, or are you limited by some other factor?
1: So meaning I'm not overloading the muscle enough. Yeah.
0: Are you over, Are you putting enough stress on the muscle? or not? Mm. Uh, Do you have a high enough testosterone, or not? Do you have enough amino acid, or not? Any of those things can be the bottleneck. Um, And are you at the limit of your genes, right? Like, all of these things start to matter. Now, my guess is, virtually nobody is at the limit of their genes, Mm. except for bodybuilders. So, I'm not at the limit of my genes. What am I at the limit of right now? Probably, and I'm not at the limit of protein anymore. I'm probably at the limit of how hard I'm willing to train, how much I'm willing to train. And actually, I'm probably at the limit of testosterone as well because mm. my T is pretty low. So, I can't answer the question for you what is more protein going to do because I would need a lot more information to understand like how you're training, what's your training volume, what's your training intensity and, you know, all those factors.
1: Okay. So, one thing while I have you that I I will say is my limitation when I think about what holds my physique back, I get injured a lot and I get injured in a very specific repeatable way which I think has to do with stability, which you cover in the book. So um, I have a very weak middle back and I compensate for everything by shrugging my traps. Mm. So it almost doesn't matter what I'm doing. Brushing my teeth, I will suddenly realize Jesus. And I have to like remind myself to, I think it's uh, retract my scapular. Like I'm pulling that sort of mid back girdle down um, in the book, you go into how you can rewire the way that your brain has learned uh, to control your musculature. What what is that process? I have injured my trap. You're gonna think I'm exaggerating. I've injured my trap 115 times over the 20 years. When you of say injured up. your
0: trap, same same. Sent
1: it into spasm, so where I can't turn my head mm. or I can't tilt my head. Uh, literally last night in bed. I was rolling over. So just adjusting my posture and it went. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding. And so then I couldn't fall back asleep because I could just feel it tightening and tightening and tightening and tightening. Um, that is the thing that has has held me back for forever. It's the first injury I ever received the, mm-hmm. the first day in the gym doing an overhead press. It went and I thought I was dying at that point. I was like, what the fuck? Uh, yeah, I've injured it probably at least 115 times. Again, it would be impossible for me to kind of give you the diagnostic here, but I think, I think if you
0: think about the way I kind of go through that stability chapter, um, it, start, it starts with respiration. So the first thing we'd have to understand is what's your respiratory strategy? Um, so are you over-inflated, under-inflated, chest breathing only, abdomen breathing only, all of these things. Um, are you chest out? Are you hunched over? Like, you'd wanna go through, how do you correct your, your respiration strategy? Um, and then you'd want to look at, do you have, for example, segmental control of your spine? Hmm. Most people do not. I can't imagine. Yeah, so until you have segmental control of the spine, you are always going to disproportionately put force at various hinge points in the spine. Do you have thoracic mobility of your spine? Sounds like you don't have thoracic mobility of the spine. Do you have scap- What is thoracic mobility? So are you able to rotate through the thoracic spine? Hmm. So you have a cervical spine thoracic spine is the longest segment and then the lumbar spine um, So
1: most people don't have segmental. So like control. people that like twist themselves on a chair that kind of thing Like how would you do that?
0: Yeah, but if you do twist where are you twisting through hmm. where is the torsion? What part of the spine for me almost certainly lower back exactly that would be the most common. So most people are excessively Applying torsion in the lumbar spine and you want to be able to dissipate it through the whole spine Hmm. Also, when you talk about the flexion extension of the spine, and by the way, we made a bunch of videos like, because you can't explain all this stuff in Hmm. words. So in the book, there's a link to like videos where I go through what these things look like. Um, but you know, being able to do a segmental cat cow exercise is a really good way to see if you have segmental control of extension and flexion of the spine from head to tail. Um, so, you know, Then we get into sort of, do you have scapular control through the full range of motion through all four phases? So protraction, retraction, elevation, depression, again, very few people can, can control their scapula through those things. So stability and movement are, uh, you know, intertwined very intimately. And if you, you know, if you're trying to unpack these injuries, you generally have to go back to the breath training how to train yourself how to breathe properly training yourself how to move properly Mm. and there are two schools of thought that i have relied on very heavily in my journey here and that of my patients and that one is called dynamic neuromuscular stabilization dns the other is called postural restoration institute pri
1: bringing everything that i've learned from this conversation and the book today tell me if this makes sense so i i would like to add more muscle to my frame. Do you, do you know how much muscle mass you have right now? I don't. Have you had a DEXA scan? I haven't, man. I'm really like I love that stuff, but because no one's coming to my house to do it, uh I haven't gotten tested. It'd be very interesting. You can't do it at your house. You kind of have to
0: go yeah. to the machine.
1: I'm, I'm willing to do it. Yeah, it yeah. I would be very keen to figure that out. One, I want to see if I have Well, any you should get a baseline effect. and you should,
0: you, you know, you should figure out like where you are, where do you stack mm-hmm. up right now in terms of muscle mass, if for no other reason, then you can evaluate your progress. If you let's say you, you know, you test your ALMI, it's at the 70th percentile. That's great. But do you want it to be at the 80th percentile? Well, this mm-hmm. way you can figure out if the changes you're making are going to move you in the right direction or not.
1: All right. So making my goal maybe even more broad is something you talk about in the book, which is the centenarian decathlon. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what are the things you want to be able to do when you're older? You better be scoring very high on them depending on what part of your age you're in now because it's all going to decline as you get older. So here are the things I feel like I should be implementing based on I am 47. Okay. And so what do you want to be able to do
0: 40 to 50 years from now?
1: I want to be able to be very independent from a mobility perspective. So I love the idea of being able to, um, when I'm flying to Mars, to be able to hold, I guess, before we blast off, be able to put luggage above my head. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, I wanna be able to travel, put things above my head. I don't wanna lose a lot of my strength. I wanna make- main... And if you
0: wanna to go to Mars, by the way, you're gonna to have to tolerate pretty high G-forces. So think about the next strength nice. that's gonna be required to do
1: that. Yes. Also, I would just like to not have constant trap injuries. That'd be amazing. Um, I want to be able to play video games. Okay. Tell me,
0: I don't play video games. I do drive a simulator though. So that's probably similar.
1: Uh, I would guess not from the perspective of what I struggle with. So I had so much wrist inflammation for so Uh, long. I think a lot about inflammation, inflammation, keep that down. So you, thank you, by the way, you're uh, encouraging me to add fat to my diet allowed me to go from basically never being able to play video games to I can now play as much as I want on Saturday, which I mean, I'm sure I could play more than that, but that's just from a time allocation standpoint. So uh, that's been a huge win. So being able to do that, uh, sex, huge thing in my life. So being able to whatever that takes. uh, So a certain amount of flexibility, I imagine, uh, stamina, yeah aesthetics i want to look good i want to be strong look strong um something cognitive like being super sharp that would be really important Well, i mean if you're playing video
0: games presumably you've got to have pretty decent cognition right Mm -hmm. you've got to have um certain skills and um depending on if you want to be doing this
1: yeah also true i don't need to pick up Grandchildren. That would be the maybe one deviation from what a lot of people want to be able to do. But being able to be physically active, I mean take sex is my like I want to be able to do that to the fullest. Um so given all of those things, here's sort of how I see this now breaking out. Um sleep, which we didn't really get into, but I obviously I'm gonna need to get sleep. That's gonna be super important. Um, I'm going to need to identify, given my family history, I think it's either going to be cancer or heart disease. Neither are sort of overwhelmingly prevalent, um, but those would be the two where grandparents died of that. So certainly want to be thoughtful about that. So I'd identify those two horsemen. So I'm going to be really thoughtful around my diet, making sure that I don't have fat spilling out, uh, that I'm really thoughtful about the um, APO little a, fuck. Apo B. apo the, That's the one that gets into my cell walls, y- arterial walls. Yeah,
0: and you do need to check your LP little a, which is the thing we talked about as well, that is genetic and occurs in about 8% to 12% of people.
1: Okay, so uh, paying attention to my diet, uh, the adjustment that I'm thinking about making my diet, I'm gonna test not doing intermittent fasting, see what that does for my muscle mass. Um, eating more protein. I have a feeling I might be lower in protein, though I haven't counted up the eggs. I eat a lot of eggs. Um, And then I'm really curious to see about cycling rapamycin. So what is your cycle on rapamycin? Um, I just dose it once a
0: week. Just take
1: one dose once a week. Yep. Okay. Very interesting. Um, Trying that what other changes? I feel well, that, like
0: you're going to have to have a doctor help you with that. That's that's not an that's not an over the counter. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 for
1: sure, for sure. I obviously would be doing this on the back of a lot of blood testing to make sure that I um, am a, a that I know what my baseline is. B that I'm actually getting the result that I want to see. Um, so, yeah, looking at the number on the um, the cholesterol that we were talking about earlier, grip strength. Is it going to be one?
0: Again, not, you know, not sitting around with a little, one of those like little grip squeezers Mm because that's not really what it's about. It's how do you develop grip strength? You develop it by carrying heavy things, right? Right. So, you know, this morning I was deadlifting and because I was doing it in the hotel and I didn't have chalk, I was failing in grip today. Hmm. Like, it's actually funny. My hands and my forearms are still sore five hours later because I was really at the limits of what I could do without... Chalk and you know, I didn't have anything else, so so but so yeah, I was deadlifting, but think about how much I was doing for my upper body, even though that's a lower body activity. Um, you know, doing farmer carries, something I love doing. I mean, I'm always trying to figure out a way to use my upper body to maximize the relationship between grip and shoulder. So, think of it less as like very specific tests that you do, um, and think of it more as the, the broader activity you need to do to produce that. So grip strength is just an integral of upper body strength.
1: Hmm. All right, so if if that is my sort of fumbly way through the things, the changes that I'm gonna make, um, if somebody wants to outlive and they come to you at that cocktail party and you just cannot get away from them <clears throat> and you have to answer the question in a succinct way, um, what do people need to do to maximize the human life expectancy?
0: There is no sentence I can give any person to tell them what the prescription is, right? I mean, if I could, I wouldn't have written a 500-page book. Mm-hmm. There's no chance. Believe me, I didn't want to write a. I, I wasn't look. I wasn't looking for things to do, right? The reason this is complicated is that it's complicated, um, and it, two people can have two very different prescriptions. You know, if I'm at that cocktail party and the person I'm talking to after a few minutes, I figure out that their biggest issue is that they're not sleeping, you know, or that, you know, they're sleeping four hours a night. Uh, Nothing else, I'm not gonna really waste time talking about protein with them. We've got to figure out why they're not sleeping seven to nine hours a night. And how much of that is sleep hygiene? How much of that is underlying pathology like sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome? How much of that is alcohol? How much of that, like you you have to get to the root of that problem. But if you're sleeping four hours a night, that's the elephant in the room. If you're not exercising at all and you're sleeping well and you're sort of eating okay, like none of that other stuff matters. You need to get exercising. If you have type two diabetes and metabolic syndrome, you know, I, we have to get you exercising and changing your diet and all those other things. So so again, it, it, I'm not being difficult because I don't want to give glib answers. I, I'm not giving a glib answer because there isn't one.
1: Very fair. All right, where can people engage with you to get the non-glib details on all of this?
0: Uh, I think if you go to our website, peteratiamd.com, and sign up for our free newsletter, you'll very quickly get brought into our world where every Sunday we're going to spit out something that me and my research team have written on all these topics.
1: I love it. All right, guys, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.